politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and minimum standing at the ready to guard our liberties to the Conservative Review podcast here with Daniel Horowitz back in the house on Thursday, February 18th, a gloomy Thursday in more ways than one. We got a big ice storm here on the East Coast, so I got uh, the whole brood is home today. They don't have their pods and homeschooling curriculum outside the home, so it's all inside the home. I got the baby reverting back to newborn status, up all night screaming. So I'm a little bit discombobulated. I got a headache, but certainly happy to be here with you this town hall where we don't only focus on entertainment and information but we focus on building a movement. We're having a lot of people sign up for conaction.network to join our state strike force teams. We need them more now than ever. We need you guys to sign up on iTunes for the CR podcast. Um, the more you sign up, the more you get others to sign up and give a five-star review. The more this gets out, the more this gets out, the more we change the country. And that's what it always is about. I'm not just happy to sit here and complain about something. I want something done. One of our fans uh, made the point to me that where, where he sees my role is sort of like that guy who was the anchor on the show in the 1976 movie In Network. The famous clip. I didn't want to, you know, get run into copyright issues, so I'm not playing it here. But you could find it online about a four-minute clip. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And the guy gets up there, and he, and he gives the following speech. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we are living in is getting smaller. Think about that. And all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster, my TV, my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave, me, leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression, the inflation, the Russians, and the crime in the street. All I know is that the first is that first you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. I want you to get up right now, sit up, go to your windows, open them and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Things have got to change, but first you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression, the inflation, the oil crisis. But first, get out of your chairs, open the windows, stick your head out, and yell and say it. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. And then the movie shows how one woman gets up in her apartment, high-rise apartments all over the place, yells, yells out the window, and then after a couple of minutes, the entire street is doing the same thing. And I think... This is what all of us are waiting for. We are suffering from an amalgamation of injustices 
perpetrated by our government that violate the core tenets of why we have a government. Bringing in illegal aliens, letting out criminals while treating us like criminals. The COVID stuff alone is worse than anything we could have ever imagined that could have happened, that would have, in our minds, tripped that wire and set set us off to this moment where we all say we're not going to take it anymore. And yet you look at all these Republican legislatures after 10 months of the worst deceptions and lies that are so transparent. Bill Gates is out there now saying we need a third shot. It's a parody. It's pathetic. The medical community, the legal people, they're all lying to us. They're all destroying our civilization. We know it's true. And it's not inconsequential lies. They're lies that are destroying our humanity. I wouldn't even say our country. It's been destroyed a long time ago. And yet it's like when we need a level 10, they're at a one. When we need a level 20, they're at a five. Even the good guys in the legislatures. Where are they? This is the moment we need. And these are the leaders we need to spur that moment. And in that vein, I want to take a little bit of a detour to discuss the legacy of really the father of this industry that we're all in, Rush Limbaugh, and then come back to some of the news of the day on COVID fascism, legislatures, some other stuff. But he really was the man at the time when we needed him. But now we need another Rush Limbaugh, but not really one person. We need a movement. And we need all of us to finally take the principles that he catalyzed in the late 80s and early 90s and actually put them into action. When you think of Rush, really, he he was the right man at the right time in 1988. Reagan was retiring from public life. And Bush became president. We had no leadership. As I always note, that was the moment where the Republican Party and the conservative movement went off the rails. There were some hiccups over time where we tried to gain back that momentum. Probably most notoriously in 1994, the revolution where Rush was a huge part of it, if not the biggest part of it. But he was really the voice. There was nothing else then. It's truly hard to overstate the importance of Rush back then. You know, I I never really listened to him much since I became professional. I haven't had time. I have my own show, my own way of thinking. In my mind, for quite a while, I think he went a little bit, got a little distracted on things and could have done more. But as I'm going to get back to in the final year of his life, He seemed to really get back on message and understand more than anyone, I think, where we were headed as a a people. And it's incumbent upon us to take that and actualize it. And, you know, it's it's been a long time. But obviously, the the crushing news of yesterday with, with his death really got me to think about the fact that he was really such a big part of my life at 
that juncture in history in the 90s, early 2000s. It was, it was all Rush. So those of you who maybe started turning, tuning out of Rush the last number of years and tuning into shows that are newer like Dan Bongino and myself and you felt that it spoke to you more than, than what he was saying, you have to remember if you like what I'm saying, it, the foundation really came from him. I remember when, you know, certainly every summer day I would listen to him, but when we'd have a winter day like today where I would have been off of school, we have an ice storm here, I would pine for those hours on WCBM here, 12 to 3 Eastern, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you as young as, you're going to laugh at me, and, and I'm that crazy, as young as five, six, seven years old, I would be laying on my bed. Sometimes I'd fall asleep in the middle. I would love those Paul Shanklin parodies. I love the fact that there was one man that would, he would like make fun out of the entire universe. They would all, you know, seriously, you know, put on those serious voices and get behind, um, you know, a certain way of thinking. And he would just come in and just demolish it. And, and there was no diffidence in his voice. He was so confident in his views. He, underst- he, had, he had such a, such a sense of wrong and right, and he brought it out in a very funny way, and he just demolished them. You know, and it, I'll never forget his uh, parody in 2000. They all, they all suddenly on, on, on air discovered one day to use the word gravitas, like Dick Cheney needed gravitas. And then he created that famous song, We Need Gravitas, and he had the montage of all of them. You know, a lot of us copy a lot of these tactics and they've become common. Um, the whole concept of drive-by, how they would focus our attention on something and lie and lie and lie, and we would accept the lie, and then by the time we could debunk it, they're on to the new lie, so they never get called on the old one, and their their first one is their second one is able to persist. And boy, oh boy, does this apply to COVID fascism. A lot of principles he laid down. You know, even those of us who kind of went our own way and thought maybe, you know, we could do it a little better now in, in Russia's old age. But he is undeniably laid the foundation for that. If you like what I have to say, just understand my foundation was Rush. I'm not just saying that because, oh, you know, everyone has to say nice things about him today. I really do mean that. That is where I got my thing. And my father, obviously, um, but it was all Rush. There was there was no internet. Um, it was mainly people a little bit older than me. I think people in their 40s, more than 30s, that he influenced, 40s and 50s. But, you know, I was, uh, as my family would say, I was an adult very young and I understood politics at an extremely young age. And it was Rush. It, that, that's really what it was. It was Rush before anything else. Obviously, I wasn't reading stuff at that age. But I had that radio on. And um, everything that I'm doing today is because of Rush blazing that trail. I mean, that, that is undeniable. Another interesting thing about Rush, um, it's just his his understanding of long-form conversation. What, what, what I think the left 
really resented because I, I was always bothered by the fact that why did the left obsess about radio? How they were bothered by the fact that Rush created a conservative monopoly on AM radio. And I was like, you guys have a monopoly on TV and print. So what do you care about AM radio? You know, we're not talking about the 1930s here, 1940s. You know, TV was the big thing and they had control of all the networks. So what do you care about that? But I think what they were jealous about is that TV could be manipulated with theatrics, small sound bites. He showed how we were the only ones who were capable of having a long form format. That our view, we were able to discuss our views and, and it was Rush who did this first for three hour programming. No TV, no pictures to help, no visuals to distort. It was just your words. The veracity of your words. That's the beauty, really, of, of audio. And I still like it to this day. And that, 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 I think, is really his legacy. Um, but again, we have to do something with it. It's incumbent upon us to finally 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 do something with it now folks today's show is sponsored by we the people holsters if there's something you can do to protect yourself you get a gun you get ammo but folks you got to get the gun apparel you got to get your holsters one of our sponsors is we the people holsters they're all american-made firearms and the thing about we the people is that they are really cheaper than others they start at just 40 bucks, but you can get an additional $10 off with offer code CR. They're all made right here in the USA, propriety clip designs. They're comfortable and secure. Um, and the prices have not gone up, unlike with ammo. So folks, you whether you're training outside the waistband or usually inside the waistband for concealed carry, a holster is what gives you the confidence that you're carrying properly and securely and that you could draw quickly and securely. Go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. Every holster ships free, comes with a lifetime guarantee. Um, but to get your $10 off, go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. Offer code CR, wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR. Now, I just wanted to play for you clips of Rush. And I know today, you know, everyone, every talk show host is going to try to establish their relationship with Rush. And I never met him in person. I never talked to him. But I want to play for you some clips that are going to reveal that he was an avid reader of Conservative Review. And he held... My writing in high regard, it truly was an honor. And I don't do this so much to, to promote my own name, but to make a point about Rush himself. I really feel that in his final six months, Rush kind of got back on message. Some of his final shows that he was doing when he was only able to do a few, you know, in the course of a few weeks there in December... He he basically called for a revolution. He said this is 17, 1776 all over again. He understood that what we're doing is not working. He got it. And one of the biggest things he got that on was the judiciary. And 
he he quoted me about four times over the course of June, July. I'm going to play three clips from two shows. And if you want to, I, I really, I'm not going to sit and play 40 minutes of audio here. I'm only going to play a few minutes. But I want you guys to Google my name and Rush Limbaugh June 16th and then do June 19th. And you'll be able to read the full transcript. It's very profound. Very profound what he what he says. But um, I want you to first read, first, first take a listen to cut one from the June 16th show. Take a listen. You really, you, 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 you think that these judges would compromise their judicial beliefs? Yeah, folks. I now think a whole lot of stuff is possible I used to not think was. I, 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 I had no idea how eager to cave so many people supposedly on our side are. And no idea. I want to get to this this Daniel Horowitz, but not to be confused with David Horowitz. It's Daniel Horowitz at the Conservative Review, um, which it, it may be the, if you're going to read a conservative publication, Conservative Review may be the uh, the one to read. It's not a bunch of never-Trumpers. These, these are solid, reliable, incorruptible conservatives. And Daniel Horowitz was mortified over these Supreme Court decisions yesterday. Give you an example of his writing. Within 35 minutes today, this is yesterday, Within 35 minutes today at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, what some thought was the most conservative Supreme Court of all time concocted a fundamental right to transgenderism in the context of labor law. They erased the Second Amendment. They interfered with a state death penalty case, but declined to interfere with a California law that criminalizes Law enforcement cooperation with federal immigration agents. That's the sanctuary city law. They declined to set that law. They declined to interfere with a California law that criminalizes ICE cooperating or or local law enforcement cops like San Francisco PD. If San Francisco PD cooperates with ICE, they refused to interfere, there's a law that says that that's, that that can't be done. You can't sabotage ICE, a local police. Did they let that stand? Taken in totality, the so-called conservative legal movement, which has promoted the idea of appointing better judges rather than fighting the entire concept of judicial supremacism, has failed miserably. This yesterday was its Waterloo. So, again, folks, he was an avid reader of CR, fully understood this. He was talking about, basically, it was June 16th was the day that Gorsuch came out with the Bostock opinion, but we got screwed on a bunch of other things, but they adopted transgenderism. And a lot of conservatives just didn't care. Ho-hum. Like, this was the worst thing ever, and it was done after we got two justices on the court by Trump. And he recognized it. I want to play two more clips here. These are from the June 19th show. 
cut two and cut three. Let's take a listen. I have um, some thoughts on the Supreme Court ruling that happened that I want to get into and share with you today because it's it's even worse than what I my original instincts about it were yesterday. And I, I've uh, come to this realization with the help of Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review again. And he basically has laid out what we're up against. What we are up against is not liberal judges and conservative judges and Republican presidents coming up with the right appointees. That's not what's going on. What's going on is that we are living at a time in the so-called American experiment where the judicial branch believes it is supreme over the other two branches. We are having a direct problem with judicial supremacy, and you can see it in the ruling that came down on DACA. Uh, you can see it in any number of rulings, but, but what it, the way it's manifesting itself, I didn't, I didn't say it this way uh, yesterday, the day before, but this is exactly what I was trying to get at. We had a caller yesterday who tried to, you know, you were wrong. Trump just has to redo this damn executive order. The court said, just do it the right way and we'll uh, get you what you want. And I said, you really believe that? That might, might be what they said. Trump is never going to get the Supreme Court to rule in his favor on this. And the reason why is the purpose of this Supreme Court is to make sure that the Obama presidency is not unraveled. Now hold that thought. Now listen to cut three. Daniel Horowitz, Conservative Review, headline, Time for Trump and Conservatives to Crush Judicial Supremacy. Here's how. Now, I've, I've been referring to this uh, piece since the beginning of the program. And Mr. Horowitz here is, uh, is an expert uh, on, the, on the whole subject of uh, conservative uh, jurisprudence, uh, the conservative... Uh, uh, legal projects, you know, how to come up with the best judges, how to nominate them, how to get them confirmed. And he says that what we've seen in the past four years should tell everybody that it isn't about finding the best judges because we can't. Don't you understand here that the problem with a lot of talk show hosts is that they're stuck in their ways you know, they start off their first year or two, they have their shtick, they have their parodies, they have their terminology, they have their way of thinking, and they can't get into new thought processes. And what I found amazing is that after 32 years, this is after Russia's already diagnosed, he's already very sick, he was willing to rethink his way of thinking. And... Like everyone else, Rush would talk about, oh, Republicans still have to win because we need conservative judges. And it's like he had a eureka moment. He talked about conservative review as uncorruptible, probably your best source of news. It was a big, one of the big honors of my life. I remember I was playing ball with my kid that day. I took off a little bit and people were texting me. And that was certainly a resounding endorsement. But I think that says a lot about Rush. You know, again, some of you were a little bit disappointed in his later years, maybe felt he got a little bit too into the soap opera, didn't focus on where conservatives need to be. I think in this final half a year that shows you he was reading my stuff. And I know he was for years. He quoted me, you know, four or five years ago, too. 
but he got it. He was like, dude, the, he talked about the Federalist Society. He said, it doesn't make a difference. They're scared. The left judges do what they want. The conservative judges are a joke. It's judicial supremacism. That's the problem. And he, and he talked about how the, the, the left created a game that whatever the courts say goes. And Congress and Republicans went along with it. So the left was like, all right, we'll win that game. And the minute you agree to that game, you lost it. Read the transcripts of Rush from those two shows, June 16th and June 19th. You'll see where he talks about the judiciary. It's its own like subtitle. If you know Rush's um, notes, he'll have, uh, you know, let's say five different things, uh, main topics, and this is one of them. And, and one of them is the title is Judicial Supremacism. It's, it was like a eureka moment, and he admitted it on air. Wow, I finally got it. And and it was it was truly a beautiful moment. And I, you know, if I had one thing to tell Rush, it would be, you know what? It was when I was a tadpole in the '90s, listening to you. That's what honed me into that way of thinking. And I was glad I was able to reciprocate later on in life, and offer Rush himself that that insight. And it's kind of like what some of you do to me. Where, you know, I've gotten you focused on some issues and sometimes you'll email me these observations that I didn't see myself. Like, wow, that, that's a great point. And, you know, R- Rush had this whole mystique of, you know, he would um, speak very highly of himself and it almost sounded very haughty. But it, it was a it was a shtick. It was it was a it was a persona. And anyone who knew him personally, uh, Mark was talking about this yesterday he was extremely generous. He was very humble. I know um, David talked about this. Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if I should say this, but I'll say it. Uh, you know, obviously, Rush was a big supporter of Trump. And look, Trump gave him the Medal of Honor. I mean, like, so what, what is he supposed to say? But there's an interesting story. David Limbaugh, like, like most of the kind of traditional conservatives supported Cruz in the primary. Um, and he he believed Trump just wasn't going to deliver. And, you know, obviously later on, David became an avid Trump supporter. But during the primary, he supported Cruz. He actually told me that Rush one time helped charter, put him on his private plane so he could go and organize something for Ted Cruz, even though he was really giving more voice to Trump at that moment. Just, just an interesting thing there. But... He was very humble, and one of the things Rush did better than anyone else, you know, a lot of people rip off other people's works, and they don't cite them. He was the number one name, but he always cited people. He always wanted to give people credit. He was very careful with that. He would mention your name, and he would give, and he did that with me, and he did that with a lot of people. He'd give them a tremendous amount of publicity. A lot of people's careers got started because of Rush. He, he really did share the wealth in that sense. He was a team player. Um, and I think that's something that's overlooked. And, and I just wanted to give that personal anecdote, not so much to talk about myself, but to demonstrate his own character, uh, both in terms of being very generous, of giving lesser known people their due, but also really understanding he got it. He got it. It wasn't like, you know, and as close as he was with Trump, it wasn't a matter of, oh, Trump, Trump appointed great judges. <laughs> he got it. That 
the judiciary was worse off than ever, ever before. So, you know, look, may his memory be blessed. He's with uh, his creator now. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say about Rush, it, it brought up a lot of nostalgia for me because it wasn't just Rush himself, but I remember the 1990s and what conservatives were saying back then. And one of you guys um, sent me a link because I've been talking about how the military has been utterly destroyed, utterly destroyed. And one of you sent me a link to the, the, the Marine website. This is directly from the Marines where they put out a whole protocol for transgenderism. And, and it's just it's just soul crushing. It is soul crushing. These are the Marines. This is what has happened to our Marines. Military service by transgender persons and persons with gender dysphoria interim guidance. Now we have our military being used, 4,700 personnel for to help FEMA with COVID. This is the nation we've become. And I don't know, again, you know, just I was thinking back to Rush and all the principles that I was guided with. To this day, I'm one of the few people that are willing to get up and say, a nation that sends its women out to fight for itself is a nation not worth fighting for. And I'm not saying certainly people that serve patriotic in the military, but I'm saying really putting them into combat infantry units and certainly now they're in everything. I remember when this was just being talked about in the 90s. And Rush fought it tooth and nail. He was a culture warrior. He fought the homosexual agenda. And it, it just it just reminded me of how valuable he was in the 90s. And, and I really think it showed. If you if you, uh, by any objection, you know, since the dawn of time, we've been moving left and left and left and left, and it's a one-way ratchet, and we've never succeeded in moving things back. But if you ever had to pick a time where we actually had somewhat of a detente and froze frame, it was in the 90s. It was the 90s. Um, ironically, it, it was under Clinton where you had that, that the, the Gingrich era. And, you know, we came very close to doing some really good things that could have rolled things back, but it, we, it was just short. The Senate was controlled by Bob Dole and those guys. But but that was that was rush. I mean, the 1990s was all rush. It was before the internet really became a big uh, factor in politics. And I just thought back that our job is to look at where we came from. Look at the things he was fighting for. I mean, play shows from him in the early 90s. We won't even have conservatives today that will talk like that. Even the better conservatives. That's how much ground we have seeded. That's how much that Overton window has moved over. And now it's to the point where now it's considered like COVID fascism that you must criminalize a human being's breath like we talked about yesterday with Kristen Megan, a great guest. We don't even have we'll, we'll, more than five people in the legislature militating against the premise of COVID fascism. I'm, I'm looking at all these legislatures and it's like, yeah, you know, governor, maybe the legislature needs a little input. You're doing a good job. I get it. 
but you know, you can't act unilaterally forever. Let us have a little bit after 60 days, you know, let's work together. No teeth in the bill. And certainly won't militate against the immoral lies behind the science and the legality of what they're doing. Despite the fact that it's become a parody. We have more information, more academic research, more learned observations, more data, more common sense against COVID fascism than we've ever assembled against any policy issue in my lifetime. This is not a hard issue. Yet here we are. And every Republican agrees you must wear a mask. There's only one legislature that got rid of that, Wisconsin. And even then, it was like, look, you know, you did it unlawfully. Let's work on a way together, Governor Evers, for us to implement some sort of better version of this. That's basically the way they said said it. We've been seeding ground our whole life, and I think... I think in his final year, when he was coming closer to the Lord, as anyone is when they kind of know their their end is near, he, you could tell he got it. He got it. He got that that this game is not working. In other words, as much of a Trump fan as he was, closer to him than anyone will ever get, He didn't use that as an excuse to say, oh, we solved our world's problems. We had four years of Trump and we're we're good to go. He got it. And and again, those clips I played for you, remember, it wasn't, you know, from November, December when Trump, you know, unofficially lost. He didn't really lose. And it became clear Biden was going to be president and Biden became president. It was even when Trump was president, he realized, dude, we lost the judiciary and Trump's own appointees did us in. He got it. So it's incumbent upon us to get it. I credit Rush. And again, I'm really, I mean, anyone who knows me personally, my family will laugh. I'm not just saying this. I haven't talked about him much in my professional career because, you know, he hasn't been that much a part of my life. Now I haven't really listened to him, but in the nineties and early two thousands, that's where I got my foundation. That's where I got my moral clarity from. I really did. There are other ways too. my religion, the Bible, my, my, my father kind of got me into politics. I always talk about, you know, when he supported Perot before it was popular in 1992. Um, but, but really, it was it was day in day out. I'm not kidding you. Uh, every day I had off of school, that was the highlight of getting off of school is that I was able to lis- listen to Rush. You know, back then you didn't have podcasting. It was kind of very hard to find a way to listen to past shows. It's kind of cool. It's like you know everything was live. If you didn't get it then, you lose it. And I remember his TV shows a little bit. Uh, I, I believe probably. The first political book I read was in 93. It came out. See, I told you so. Um, is the the book I read from Rush. Um, I must also say he did a terrific job with the Rush Revere stuff. Um, bringing history to children in an entertaining way. My, my 10-year-old loved it. 
the ones in the Revolutionary War uh, with the horse there. He was really into that. They, they were very well done. Um, and and, and I, I wish he would have written more of those because that was there was there was a big need for that. And again, our job is to look at what one man did really primarily, I would say, in the first half of his career, more so than the latter half. That is our job. What are we going to do? What is our contribution? And our contribution is we need to speak to the time that we live in, that we are mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. That is our job. It's no longer to muse, punditry, commentate. That's what Rush set the table for. But now we have to eat. Got to take it to the next level. That is our job. Now, there's so many news items I want to get to. There's a lot of little news. Um, but I just want to read to you. This is from, where is this? The Indiana Lawyer. So I'm focusing on different legislatures, and they're all the same, really. But here you have Holcomb. Holcomb, the Republican governor, he is he is really bad. He is as bad as, what's his name? DeWine in Ohio. This is a guy that waited till, I think it was March 13th or something of last year when the, the night the legislature left session is when he said, I'm shutting down restaurants. And here the Indiana legislature went three quarters of a year allowing a governor to be a dictator. Every bit of COVID fascism is a lie. Everything he did is a lie. They have a mass mandate, every bit as bad as California and the state of Indiana. There are super majorities in both houses, and it's one of those states where they could override the governor with 51%. So they could destroy Holcomb's fascism by a mile. By the way, Holcomb also manipulated the election so he'd be able to win. He used COVID, the mail-in ballots. So anyway, this is from the Indiana lawyer. Republican legislative leaders have praised Holcomb's handling of the pandemic, but they also say lawmakers should be able to provide input in the decisions when an emergency continues for an extended period of time. Under the bill, the governor would be allowed to issue an initial 30-day emergency order, but then could extend it only for another 15 days unless the governor called the legislature back for a special session where the body was already in session. If the governor called lawmakers in for a special session or they were already in session, then the initial order could be extended for 30 days. So you get 60 there. The General Assembly could then decide whether to pass legislation allowing the executive order to continue or not. If lawmakers took no action, the order would expire after that 30-day extension. It would only apply if and when the governor's emergency order affected 10 or more counties with an 180-day period, the bill would apply to executive orders issued after March 1st. Okay, so it doesn't apply to the existing ones. This is one of the games they're playing. What we're, do, what we're trying to do with this bill is broaden the number of people who are involved in the decision-making process, said State 
Senator Susan Glick, Republican of Howe, who authored the bill. I think it's all of us, both minority, majority members, felt left out. Poor baby, you were left out. Now, again, obviously, I, I support, you know, separation of powers. A governor can't do, do this without the legislature. But, dude, where's the, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. You're masking our children. You're destroying our businesses. You're destroying our livelihood. Where is that? You're lying. Masks don't help at all. They only harm. Lockdowns don't help. They only harm. You're a murderer, Holcomb. Where are the Republicans saying that? The article continues, but as as it's currently drafted, the governor could simply issue a new executive order after 45 days if lawmakers weren't in session. Or 60 days if they were. The bill currently only applies to executive orders being extended or renewed. Lawmakers could amend the bill to close the loopholes before the legislation receives a final vote in the Senate. And then they go on to say SB 407 is substantially different from the House Bill 1123. That bill would create what would be called emergency session. It would not limit the governor's ability to extend emergency orders, but if lawmakers were in emergency session, they could pass legislation to prevent the order. But they could do that now. They could nullify it. We want a bill that the default is he can't have an order unless the legislature signs off. But no. But no. This is what we have. It's sick. This is happening in every state. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. This is what they do on every issue. No matter how radical it is, that becomes the new normal. That becomes the new normal. And Republicans just play in that sandbox. Maybe don't shut down churches. That's the best they can do. And this is the problem everywhere. The fact that even with an issue this harmful, this illogical, illegal, immoral, unscientific, Republicans and supermajority legislatures could be holding by this point is a testament to the failure of the movement. That the things that Reagan and Rush lit, the fires they lit, we extinguished and we did nothing with them. It's a testament to that. Nothing more, nothing less. We have Bill Gates now saying you need a third shot. This guy is making a killing off of it. My buddy Jordan Shackdell wrote a whole expose. This man is literally Satan. He is the worst human being alive. But, you know, our government doesn't give a damn. Do you you know how much this has become a religion? DHS, CBP, Border Patrol. Border Patrol. It might have been ICE, actually. They went after... They, they, they made a big deal. Some of you might have seen this yesterday. They seized $3 million worth of counterfeit N95 masks. That, that was their thing. So forget about the invasion at the border and the jailbreak, the criminals being released, which, by the way, it's worse than ever. 
Worse than ever crime. Traffic stops are plummeting in this country, and that's not good. It's not just speeding. They're not catching people, you know, that they typically catch that are big criminals. Almost 1,900 people were shot last last year in New York City, up 90%. By the way, a greater share than ever were people of color, 98.1%. So much for Black Lives Mattering. And this is what CBP is focused on. How dare you counterfeit our masks? You could not have written a book about something more dystopian. I mean, you you go back to Rush's. Rush used to make fun out of the Amazon Brigade, like the women in combat stuff. He used to have all sorts of memes on this, like culture stuff. We are now 100 degrees worse than any of his parodies were. He always talked about, this was a quote from him, illustrating absurdity by acting absurd. That was one of his things. You can't even do that anymore. In Melbourne, when they take the people out of the concentration camps, when they lock them up in the hotels, they have to, they're they coming out with garbage bags over their heads. This is nine news from Mel- Melbourne. Mind you, as I said yesterday, Melbourne is the place 17 years ago where they were fining manufacturers of masks for misleading people, trying to say that they work for SARS-1. And this is where we are. It's truly unbelievable. But we got to get on the playing field. We got to get on the playing field. I don't know what else to do. One idea I'm toying with is just like how we're trying to form a network of patriots cross state lines to share ideas. I'm working on an idea you know, because I'm speaking to some of these legislators every day, there's about, let's say, 10 patriots in every, you know, like a conservative caucus in every legislature. Now, there's usually about 80 Republicans or something in the states I'm talking about and only 10 good ones. And one of the things I'm trying to do is get one or two from each chamber in these 31 states where Republicans control the legislature so maybe you have a coalition of 100 members where you get together, meet together, you're on a list, and you bounce back and forth best practices so we can synchronize and magnify some of these best messaging and bills that we're talking about. Because one of the problems I'm seeing is a lot of them are very complacent. They're like, well, you know, leadership isn't going to do anything. They're never going to bring this to a vote. Uh, and I'm saying that's true if you don't do anything. But introduce the bill, let people like me write about them, light a fire under them. Let's create a grassroots network across state lines. We're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. And you have a moment like that, we're going to do this. And you never know what could come out of that. You need some sort of effort through which God could bless the fruits of your labor. But if you don't labor, you're not going to have fruits for God to bless. The results are for God, but we got to we got to get on the playing field. So that's where we are. That's where we are. And 
folks, this is what we need to do. We need to pound them with the mask stuff. Pound them. When is this going to end? Every single legislator you have, call them up and say, when is this going to end? If you don't end it now, after it's proven not to work, and you have most people have been infected or have been vaccinated, don't lie to me and tell me it's going to end at some other date. You mean it's going to be forever. That is the single most effective way to corner them. We need to say we are mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. I don't know if you guys saw this. There's this town in Sweden that is banning masks. They're banning teachers from wearing masks. Now, a year ago, this is what everyone would have done. Imagine teachers muffled while they're teaching, coming with a mask. No, you can't do that. That's common sense. It's what we, we should be doing in every every state. Every single state. You know, the New York State Senate is now threatening to cut off Cuomo's executive powers. Now, look, I don't trust Democrats. I don't know. I, don't, I doubt something will come of it. But at least rhetorically, Democrats in New York are going after Cuomo's king powers with stronger rhetoric than Republicans in Indiana and West Virginia. Think about that. That's how pathetic this party is. You had yesterday Andy Slavitt, big, big uh, dirtbag. You know, he was dirtbagging on Twitter all last year with COVID fascism. Now we know he was auditioning for a job in the Biden administration. So he's in the White House now. And he was cornered by a reporter, said, how could you explain if everything is about we're, we're going to destroy civilization because we say this is what needs to be done to work. And you see it was done perfectly in California and not done in Florida for the most part, and especially not the last number of months for the winter spread. And they've done exponentially better. How do you explain that? And he said, there's so much of this virus that's just a little beyond our explanation. It's like Republicans act like we're the ones with the weak arguments. Yeah, we got to give in. I'm scared of the mask. What can I say? The media is going to be all over me. We have all the talking points. But then again, we might have them, but not the Republican Party. One more point I want to make today. I want to just go back. And again, I'm jumping around a little bit. There's a lot of news stories that I haven't gotten to. Basically, we talked about the courts, how Rush finally understood what I was saying, that the courts are irremediably corrupt. And if you don't end judicial supremacism, we're going to be just, you know, and, and, and it's not just judicial supremacism. It's also it's constitutional supremacism. It's decompartmentalism. It's that every branch has the right to determine the Constitution. This is very important because. It, it, it reverberates in our fight with the states, state legislators versus Biden's executive order. So you don't even have a court involved there. Everyone's like, well, Daniel, uh, the supremacy clause, could states do that? Yes, everyone could do that. Everyone has to follow the Constitution. Madison was explicit about that multiple times. So, you know, one, one of the points that I always talk about is how the difference between me and other conservatives 
is that I pursue outcomes. I want to see what is going to get us on net the most constitutional, liberty, traditional values outcome. Others are just looking for a talking point. And that's why like, oh, look, look, well, point better judges. I'm like, no, that's a talking point. But you're actually enabling their outcome. So an interesting point, Biden just formed a commission to reform the Supreme Court. I don't know if you saw that news. Now, I want to make two distinct points about this. Number one, just first off, you see they fight for their views. They, they, they actually, I mean, this wasn't just talk. They're, they're really serious. We have never, nothing, nothing they did on transgenderism, gay marriage, immigration, ever caused us to even form a commission to look at judicial reform. Very interesting. So they're willing to do it, even though they're winning on it. But if there's one thing they don't like, you know, we could do better. We get 80% of what we want out of courts. I think we can get 95. Because they believe. They fight. The other point I want to make is, what should our reaction to this be? I am the only one in this entire industry saying this. Everyone else is like, oh my God, he's going to destroy the courts. And you're like, you idiot. Let them destroy judicial supremacism. The best thing they can do for us is pack the courts because then it will be out in the open once and for all that finally we will just ignore the courts. It will force the issue. Let the Democrats do it. 99 out of 100 times, they benefit from the judicial game. So let them go and delegitimize the courts. They already are. They delegitimize themselves. Republicans think the status quo is good. Rather than having a talking book. You see? You see how radical is? He wants to pick the courts. Yeah. I'm like, look, let's shake on it, buddy. You don't like the courts? Fine. No judicial supremacism if a court goes the way you don't like. But no, but not the way I don't like either. Folks, just this week, this dirtbag federal judge, John Teeger, from the Northern District, I'm forgetting which court it is in California, one of the districts in California, do you know that he just ruled, I mean, Biden was going to moot this out anyway, but Trump made a third-party agreement with, you know, Guatemala and Honduras, and literally applied the core definition of asylum, according to international law, much less U.S. law, that you can't take advantage of America, and if you really are scared of persecution, you that would mean that in your first safe country that you transited through, you had to apply for asylum. And if you didn't do that, you're a fraud, and you're just trying to take advantage of America. It was a very simple proposition. This was foreign policy that the Northern District of California in 1996, that very court said, applying the Supreme Court precedent from Shaughnessy in the 1950s, that it is that courts have no jurisdiction over it. The president has the power to over immigration, over denying people entry, because that is rooted in foreign affairs. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what the decision said. 1996 ruling in the Northern District. And yet a federal judge could just think think about it. Think about it. The conservative judges 
are not ruling against Biden's orders or anyone else's orders, the governor's orders, when they are violating human rights, like basic human rights of Americans indefinitely. You want to say, give them 15 days, give them 30 days, give them two months, 10 months into this, where it has become clear it doesn't work, no balancing test. The Supreme Court has this whole cottage industry built off of this balancing test. That if you want to go after a constitutional right, a state has to show evidence that it that it is necessary and that it's the least restrictive um, means of achieving that vital state interest. And that's balanced against the severity of how much it infringes upon the constitutional um, right. And it's subject to, to what's called strict scrutiny, where you really have to show your work. Nothing. Yet, yet, yet the liberal courts, in a, in, a, in a second, hey, you have a right to scam us and come into this country and us pay for it, even if you could have declared asylum in another country. Hey, those agreements you made with uh, foreign affairs, a court could strike down a foreign affair agreement of a president. This notion that somehow... We benefit from giving courts the striking ability. And again, I've talked about what that means. Courts have a role to play, but it's not supreme and not exclusive and they're not the final say. Um, If you are a conservative judge and a legitimate case comes before you, you have the right to rule the Constitution, but so do the other branches too. We've done a lot of that. But I'm just saying, here the Democrats are doing us a favor by going after judicial supremacism because the one out of 100 rulings they don't like And we won't take it. We have a stupid movement. We have a movement that doesn't believe in anything. Because if you actually did, you would be like those guys in the in-network movie 1976 that were yelling at the top of their lungs, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. That's where we need to be. Every action we take politically, messaging-wise, legislatively, has to reflect that sentiment. And if it doesn't, clearly, we don't believe in anything that is sane, much less conservative. Who would have ever argued, let's follow the ADA and not mask autistic children? Is that a conservative view? That's conservative now? That's right-wing? That's fringe? Yeah, I don't I don't think we could prevent the government from criminalizing human breathing everywhere all the time indefinitely forever. Yeah, yeah, I I don't I don't think Daniel that that you know, come on Daniel, you have to have real, realistic expectations. You know, we'll we'll we'll, we'll put a extra couple day limit on the governor's order and and you know, he he could renew it and and do a different one, but you know, it, we'll we'll get on the playing field a little bit. That's basically what they're doing. That is our job, folks. Again, today was a little bit more philosophical. I didn't get so much into the news of the day. Left a lot on the table. I'm going to have Mark Meckler on tomorrow. So make sure to tune in. He is the interim CEO of Parler. We're going to talk about Parler censorship, the legal fights, as well as state legislatures in general, because he is still um, the, the director or whatever they call him, president of Convention of the States. So there's a lot to talk about then. Again, send this show to every one of your friends and relatives. 
subscribe to iTunes. As Rush said about me, that my publication is solid, reliable, incorruptible conservatives. And we try to live up to that name. And Rush, I'm going to live up to that legacy. Thank you for giving me that foundation. And I owe it to you for giving me that foundation to actually take something and build an edifice with it that's meaningful, that could have influence. May God bless Rush's memory and console David and um, our other friends and family. And with that, may God console this nation and give us guidance on how to revive our nation, find some sort of part of the nation where we could live with liberty. Again, sign up for conaction.network to be part of our state liberty teams. I'll have more on that next week. But we will be back tomorrow with Mark Meckler for a special episode. Till then, God bless y'all. And thank you for listening.